You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Hanukkah is here, and Jews from around the world are getting ready to celebrate this festival of oil and lights. Even in quarantine, folks are prepping for the frying of their family's special ethnic foods and getting their candles ready for the eight nights of Hanukkah. I thought it would be wonderful to invite rabbi-in-training Mei Yi to talk about Hanukkah traditions and finding deeper meaning in this holiday. Mei is a Chinese-American Jew studying at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. She is the founder of the Person of Color Havara at Kol Tzedek Synagogue and of Min Hametzar, a national network of Jews of color Havarot. May has worked for Aurora Levins Morales on new liturgy that centers the voices of indigenous Jews and Jews of color. She has also worked as a rabbinic intern at Sedic Chicago and is currently a climate justice fellow for power in Philadelphia. May, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And it's really fun that I get to see you on Zoom while we're recording. I thought maybe we would um, start out just uh, in case some of our listeners don't know the story of Hanukkah. There's a common story that people tell about Hanukkah, which is that it's the rededication of the Jewish temple after it was destroyed by the Syrian army. And the story goes that there was enough oil for the lamps for one night of rebuilding the temple, but miraculously it lasted for eight nights. That's the story I grew up with. Is that the story you grew up with? Yeah, it's the story I'm familiar with. Um, I grew up in a secular household. I did not grow up celebrating or observing Hanukkah and have only, you know, observed it in recent years as a rabbinical student. But I think Hanukkah is an interesting holiday. You know, I, I'm a student. I'm a grad student. I live in a communal household with roommates who are not Jewish, you know, I have a room in a house. So there are always questions of me for like, okay, so if I want to light my menorah, where am I going to put it? Am I going to put it like in the main entryway where all these people who are not Jewish pass through? Am I going to put it in my little tiny room where like no one could see it? What happens when I want to leave my house and the candles are burning? Um, are other people going to watch this for me? Um, yeah, so it's it's been really interesting to be observing Hanukkah for the first time as a grad student living in a communal house and not exactly having community, you know, mm. where I would be lighting my candles because I, I think Hanukkah is really, it's a home-based holiday, right? Mm-hmm. It's a home-based practice. So yes, I can go to synagogue and light candles in community or I can lead a program but that's probably one night out of Hanukkah. So how do I make this meaningful for myself over the course of eight nights? Yeah. And I don't know if I have the answer, you know, as someone who grew up secular and now as someone who's like so immersed in um, rabbinical school and in Jewish education, I find that actually sometimes it's hard to create my own ritual and meaning when I'm so immersed in that like deep learning. And I think that it will be something for me that occurs over over years and over time. But how do I make Hanukkah something that's meaningful and unique for me? Um, yeah. And for me, as I step into being a rabbi and just like ground there and land there, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I think the question of how do we make Hanukkah meaningful is 
something that a lot of people face, especially living in a Christian society, because for many people, Hanukkah becomes like the Jewish Christmas and it becomes all about gift giving. And so part of why I wanted to talk to you is because I know you're a very thoughtful person. (laughs) And even though, and, and kind of you're a justice minded person as well. And you sort of bridge these, you work on bridging these worlds between um, spirit and ritual and activism. And so I was sort of interested in kind of what your take was on this holiday, because I think for myself, as I um, look at how do we bring deeper meaning into holidays, um, those are some of the frameworks that I'm always looking at to to get to what that meaning is. Um, I'm curious, though, is this the first year that you're celebrating Hanukkah or have you or second year? I mean, like, yes and no. Like, I don't know that there's a year that I've actually religiously, you know, lit candles every night. I think Mm -hmm. in the beginning years of of rabbinical school, I was like, yeah, I should do this. I should, like, feel what this is like. And and I would light the candles. But there were definitely nights that I forgot. Like, I don't – I have not yet been through a Hanukkah where the box of Hanukkah candles is empty by the last night. Wow. Right? My Hanukkah, we have like five boxes of candles because we have four or five menorahs that we're lighting every night. So we we have to have enough candles to go through all, get all the menorahs through the eight nights. Right. That's great. I I love that we have these two different experiences of the holiday though. But, you know, before we jump a little more into Hanukkah, can you tell a little about what, what, drew you what was your calling to becoming a rabbi if you growing up in a secular home um and now being a rabbinical student I'm curious what was that transformation that happened yeah it's a really common question um and it's a and it's a really loaded question and complicated question and it's really interesting for me to answer this question because I noticed that my answer changes Right. Even though obviously there was a sequence of sequence of events that led me to come to rabbinical school, just like with my identity, there are pieces that I let shine and there, there are pieces that I have to hide when I'm telling my story. And that feels really meaningful to say out loud right now, especially in this time of Hanukkah and in and of light when we are shining the light on things. I think in many justice circles, using Hanukkah to shine the light on things um, and where we're diminishing the light. So um you know, I have to think about how do I tell the story of how I became to be a rabbinical student in a way that's authentic and honest and shining, shining the light on who I really am, which I don't always get to do. Yes. Um, so I was, <laughs> I, I want to start talking about undergrad and then I'm like, oh, you need to go a little further back. And right, that's also always the question of where do you begin? When do you begin? Um, so I did grow up in a secular household in undergrad I think it was undergrad, I began wanting to tap into my Jewish roots. Um, a distant relative of mine had passed away and had um, requested a Jewish funeral. And my family had no idea what to do. We're like, okay, you want a Jewish funeral? We'll get some rabbi, you know, any old rabbi, and he'll do the, the funeral and ta-da. Um, and this really powerful thing happened where at the end of the funeral, someone said, well, shouldn't we recite the mourner's Kaddish? And my whole family's like, yeah, you should do what you want to do, you know? Right, the mourner's Kaddish is the, is the prayer that you say for someone who has passed away or when you're remembering someone. And this person chanted and sang the mourner's Kaddish, which is something to this day I've never, ever heard before. But as a musician, it's something that drew me into Judaism. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, 
you know, I had just come out of high school and I was like, well, this is the time to ask yourself these big life questions of who you are. And now, May, you have to wrestle with who are you and what is your relationship to Judaism? Because you've known your whole life that your father's parents were Holocaust survivors, right? You've known that. But you've never done anything with Judaism. You know, when you were a really small child, you had a Christmas tree in the house, you know, um, which, which, you know, when I think about it, it was a matter of assimilation, um, mm-hmm. that my that my grandparents did as, um, you know, refugees from Germany and that my mother did as an immigrant from China. Um, we didn't keep that tradition for long. I hardly remember it. Um, but it is something that happened. Um, so, I, yeah, so I began to wrestle with who I was and who I was as a Jewish person. I grew up so, so, so strongly identifying as Chinese-American. Um, or as Chinese, I would, my mother would come home from work and every single day I would leave a note for her on the kitchen table that she would read. I mean, I would be like practicing piano or, or doing homework, but there would always be a note for her. And I would always sign it, love your Chinese American daughter, May, your Chinese <laughs> daughter, May, you know, like I always identified that way. So after high school and like experiencing the death of this person and the Jewish funeral, I was like, okay, well, what's the other half of you? Right. And so I began to go down this hole of, okay, so this other half of you is Jewish. And what am I going to do about that? And it was really, really hard. Mm. It was really hard as a Chinese American Jew, because what's that? You know, I like I'm white passing, but I'm not white, you know, and Mm -hmm. I certainly don't look like someone who stereotypically belongs in a synagogue. And so I experienced so much racism and discrimination and being told that I wasn't allowed to enter a synagogue. And then, God forbid, you find out the politics of my father, who used to write columns in the local newspaper, you know, about the occupation and about Palestine, you know, and that soon and quickly became my politics. And, you know, it was just like, good luck to you trying to find a Jewish home and community. Not easy at all. I, I, I understand so, um, so it was really hard and I began, well, so then, so the, how did I become, come to rabbinical school? I knew I wanted to do grad school at the end of undergrad. And so I thought about what do I want to do? I was a piano performance major at the time. I had recently gotten very involved in social justice, having recently been out to Standing Rock over Thanksgiving of 2016. Um, and I, I still really wanted to figure out what Judaism was to me. And so I was thinking, well, how do I merge these three interests of mine? Music, social justice, and spirituality or Judaism. And so I decided I wanted to do something that I called musical diplomacy work, conflict resolution through music in Israel-Palestine. And so I went ahead and I studied Hebrew at the Middlebury College language, like summer language schools. Mm -hmm. And I was still desperately trying to figure out if I could get involved in Judaism. And yeah. so I looked online, I was like, what are Shabbat services going to be like at Middlebury, okay? Also, at Middlebury College, when you do the language schools, you have to sign this language pledge that you like won't speak English or read English or listen to English. And when you go to religious services, you get an exemption made. So, you know, of course that was appealing for me. Um, but I went online and I looked up Shabbat services. And the rabbi had gone to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And I was like, huh, what's this? I've never heard of Reconstructionist Judaism. So I um, looked it up. 
And I was like, wow, this is a really like social justice based Judaism. That's pretty cool. I was at my house home at the time looking this up and I ran upstairs to my parents and I was like, hey, I could be a rabbi. And we all laughed, right? It was the biggest joke for <laughs> myself too, right? Like we yeah. like all laughed. A few days later or a few weeks later, um, we were walking on the beach. I grew up in Maine and I, you know, as a, as a teenager would do, I walked ahead of my parents and was fooling around on my phone and I looked up the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and learned about this thing called the Prospective Student Institute, you know, and they would fly me out there and they would put me up and I was like, well, should I go visit? And I went back to my parents and I said, well, there's this thing. They'll fly me out. They'll put me up. Should I do it? And they were, we were all like, well, you have nothing to lose. So why don't you try? And so a few months later, I hopped on a plane and I went to visit the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And the day I arrived was the day that Trump got elected president. Mm. What a way to visit a new school, right? No yeah. one was putting on a face for me. No right. one was trying to tell me this is what the school was. Everyone was like, you know, I would go, to, I went to the bathroom and I was trying to like figure out who was the student that would host me. And I found the student in the bathroom and she was crying. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like, how do I say, hello, I think I'm staying with you tonight. It was a very, it was a very intense experience. But I decided, yeah, okay. I, I think I could find that intersection of music and of social justice and of spirituality here. Yeah, yeah. And so, Absolutely. you know, that's that's one of the stories of how yeah. I got to rabbinical school. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I also grew up in a pretty secular household, although we did celebrate Hanukkah and some of the high holidays, um, but had a similar story where my social justice approach to life and desires to be active in, in life and society were when I found some of that in Judaism was what made me feel like I could be involved in Judaism and also had this like lifelong um, longing for ritual and mm -hmm. and spirituality that I had you know been searching for in different places and just didn't ever think to look for in Judaism until late like after I got out of college and went on a whole kind of roots journey also for my grandparents who were Holocaust survivors and um, kind of connecting with that that part of my history so I very much relate to your story from obviously from a, a slightly different perspective but but I get very much what you're talking about um, yeah. so to come back to to Hanukkah um, so you said you didn't really have many traditions growing up because you didn't really celebrate it has there been anything that has sort of drawn you in since you've started, since you've been a rabbinical student, like the candle lighting or foods or other traditions that are you're feeling connected to? Yeah, so there's a piece of the candle lighting that I'm feeling connected to, and I'm, and I'm navigating how I want to connect with it. And so there's a story in the Talmud, it's actually a machloket or a disagreement that occurs between two rabbis and two schools of thought um, between Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel, and Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai. So traditionally, we light the menorah, one candle each night, and we increase the light. That's according so to the house the of Beit Hillel. the first night we Hillel. light one candle, the second night two candles, until we get up to 
eight candles. So we get up to eight, right? And right. that's the that's the the school of thought of Beit Hillel, and that's what won, right? That's what most of us do today. But then we get Beit Shammai, right? And Beit Shammai says, actually, you should start on the first night with eight candles lit. And you should decrease the light. And so that's something that I think draws me to Hanukkah, to think about what it means to increase light and what it means to decrease light. Um, I have a classmate who will light two Hanukkiahs every year. And on one, he will increase the light and another, he will decrease the light, (laughs) which I think is actually a really beautiful thing when you see them side by side. And I think that's a practice that I want to try out this year if I don't just choose one way or another. Um, yeah, but Can that's you explain a, to... a little like what is the what is the meaning but between the two different schools of thought of why we would increase the light or decrease the light? Yeah, um, you know, I don't know all of the answers of this. Um, but I think one I think the reason to decrease is showing you kind of how many days you have left. Mm-hmm. Um, and showing you how how much time it took you know the the oil didn't run out but of course there was less I think is, is part of that um, school of thought and so I don't know I think this year I'm a little bit drawn to decreasing the light um, because that feels like I don't know kind of feels like a metaphor of these times right um which is not to say that there are not countless and countless people and organizations bringing light into these times, but it feels like a really dark time. I mean, with the the current administration and with the pandemic, like, yeah, you know, there are a lot of things that feel, that feel suffocating, that feel hard, that feels like I really have to search for the light. Um, and what happens when I put that in front of me and I, and I spend eight days observing that and noticing that, you know, and that's not to say that there won't be light in my life. And that's not to say that I, as a human being and as an individual, cannot bring more light into the world. Mm-hmm. But can I think about how I can bring that light as a person, as opposed to lighting a candle? And like, how important is a physical candle and the light on that? How important is the light, you know, that's that's more figurative that I'm able to bring into the world? So you know, I'm kind of holding all of these questions and thinking about how I might want to light um, both a little literal candles and, and figurative candles this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting as the holiday approaches and also, um, you know, such a dark time of year where the sun goes down so so early and also rises so late in the morning um, that which is, you know, obviously a very significant reason that a holiday is at this time that's about light like so many cultures Mm -hmm. have holidays about bringing light and at a time that is the most dark um and so I feel like a connection to all these traditions that that do that um and I've been feeling this year in terms of the metaphor of bringing light that we I feel like we really are in kind of justice movement circles in a time of bringing light, like shining light on things, on issues, on systemic racism, on police brutality, on kind of the oppression that comes from a capitalist system out of control, like all of these things. And that um, that there's a moment where I feel like there is a little bit more receptivity to this conversation outside of the normal circles where that conversation has happened over the past many years and and so I've been thinking a lot about kind of the 
shining the light on on not just like these big issues, but also how they show up in day-to-day life. And like I spend a lot of time kind of talking to white folks and Jewish folks about racism and how it shows up and about white privilege mm-hmm. and white supremacy and how it shows up and and have I I have been surprised in this past year because of the Black Lives Matter movement, because of the fight to defund the police and and get rid of Trump and other things, that there's like people kind of being willing to listen and willing to engage in conversation and shine the light on some of these things in a way that that I haven't always experienced in my life. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about about that um, as this holiday approaches. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good framing of shining the light, right, of, okay, so every night we're going to, like, probably light a match and, like, light the candle, but how do we transition from lighting something to shining that light? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really what Hanukkah is about. It's both, but then I want to add, like, so we're shining the light, and what also is that, like, lighting the spark underneath, right, to to get people, like hyped up and amplified um and i and i also think about that now um so i live in west philadelphia um and many people probably have heard of west philadelphia lately because of the murder of of walter wallace jr and i think so much about the work we have to do to expose systems and to change Mm -hmm. systems um and so there in that there's like a lighting underneath right there's both like the shining the light to expose and there's both, and there's also like the lighting of the light of the spark underneath, in some ways to like blow up systems, right? We talk about sometimes you got to burn it all down. And so, when are the moments when when Hanukkah can not only be shining a light, but when we can actually like spark things? So so that Hanukkah is the time when we can just tear the damn systems down, right? Like. Um, I don't know, you know, how can we find this balance of shining the light and lighting the sparks so mm-hmm. that we so that we really tear the things down and that we start, you know, the new Gregorian calendar, the new year, you know, anew with with more with more light because the evil bad things have not only been exposed, but we've actually burnt them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about, you know, there, there's recently the conversation around defunding the police and kind of destroying a system. Um, you know, Obama recently made these this statement about um, that the language around defunding the police is really, he thinks really problematic because um, people who are more moderate or don't kind of understand kind of the underlying, you know, just that that language is, is he thinks very ostracizing for people and won't kind of help to build bridges and get people who may be on board with the substance underneath the statement of like, police don't need to be responding to mental health crises and, and like domestic violence and homelessness and all these other things that would be good to have people who are actually trained in addressing those, (laughs) those things rather than having like armed uh, you know, a militarized police force um, responding to those things in our community. And and I totally get that reasoning. And I've been, but I also really understand and see that the narrative around defunding the police and saying we've tried reforms, they clearly are not working. Like the system has to end. And, and also like sharing the, the history of, um, you know, kind of slave patrols that evolved into our existing police force. And so I feel like that, Sometimes that 
really saying we have to tear a system down, that conversation has has pushed the conversation in our society. And yes, how do we build bridges and how do we actually make it happen is like a whole long process, but that there is a really important part about saying something has to be burned down and, and um, in order to bring transformation. It's interesting, you know, for me as someone who has celebrated Hanukkah for so long and now, you know, I have two children who are 12 and 16 now and we have a back window in our house and we with there's like a radiator there. So we we put our Hanukkiahs, which some people know as menorahs, but but I guess are traditionally called Hanukkiahs along the radiator and you know, by the time the eight nights come, there's like a mini fire happening there because there's four or five um, Hanukkiahs, each with eight or nine candles, including the the shamus that we use to light the candles. Um, and I ju- it just fills my heart with warmth. Like for all of the thinking about what the holiday means, it's just, it's so beautiful just to fire and candles just are... I feel that way on Shabbat as well. Like they're so beautiful and it really touches my heart and my spirit um, as like a visceral experience of, of something that uh, I don't want to leave out of the telling of Hanukkah because it's, it for me is just a really beautiful experience to, to light candles together with my family and in other years with friends and community members. Yeah, so. for sure. I mean, I think there's there's power in ritual, and I'm someone who mm. loves ritual and who creates ritual, um, and so I think I think you're right to not only bring up, you know, the stories we can tell and the stories we can we can gather from this holiday and the metaphors and whatnot, um, but to acknowledge the physical act of lighting the candles and of bringing light into our homes and then bringing warmth into our mm-hmm. homes, right? Because the um, the flames bring warmth. Um, so I appreciate you saying that and naming that of <laughs> there is a physical, there is a physical aspect of this and it can have yeah. a physical impact. And um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. And then there's like all the frying of foods that happens, which, um, you know, I think in America, there's such a kind of um, European white Jewish focus on food. So people know a lot about latkes, potato pancakes and things, but really appreciating kind of the frying of foods that exist in so many different ethnic cultures of people who are Jewish, right? So whether they're Chinese or Indian or Yemeni or Italian or um, that or Mexican, like so many different peoples um, have their own Hanukkah traditions of what they what foods they choose to fry to to celebrate the oil, the miraculous oil of the holiday. Um, And so sometimes I, I, you know, my family is Ashkenazi, so I do do latkes, um, but sometimes we get into frying all other kinds of things too for fun. <laughs> so Yeah, I think it's definitely something that I want to explore. You know, um, in my cooking, I use a lot of sesame oil, um, which is a very, mm-hmm. I think it's a very Chinese ingredient. Um, I was instructed to always start every, you know, dish with sesame oil too, um, to think about the ways that I may... I may indeed fry things because it's Hanukkah and it is the season of, of frying things, but how can I bring my my Chinese self into this, which is something that I try so hard to do with everything, is to not see my Chinese identity and my Jewish identities as separate because that's what society tries to do to me. Society mm. tries to tell me that I have to label myself all these things and then pick and choose things. Um, and so much of the work I do is how do we bring 
our wholeness, our fullness into Jewish space. Um, and so I'm thinking about that, you know, as I think about cooking, I have some eggplant in the, in the fridge and I'll be frying that um, with some like Chinese rice vinegar and garlic um, and some other things. I have to check the, the traditional recipe my mom sent yeah. me. Um, but I'm thinking about frying that and, and that will occur during the season of Hanukkah. And maybe, you know, this is also how traditions are built, right? We start, That's we right. do something one year and we love it and we continue with it. Um, so I think for me, I'm going to be keeping sesame oil, That's you know, great. in mind this week um, as I cook and, and see what, see what evolves. Yeah. I think one thing that I love about when I think about quote unquote Jewish foods is that there is almost no food that is technically a Jewish food. They're basically the foods of whatever ethnic cultural group was eating. And then the Jews in that country started making those things and adapting them for a holiday. And so I think there's like, when you look around, the when I look around the world, I think there's full permission to take whatever your cultural foods are. If you're a Jew and you cook them, then it's Jewish food. And so I think connecting them to the holidays and and making them feel special is, um, is super important. Um, you know, one of the things that I was excited to talk about this year is something that I actually came up with last year to go with my latkes, which, you know, a lot of American Jews eat applesauce and sour cream with their latkes, mm-hmm. which... I like applesauce with them. I think like the tartness and acid with the oil is like a nice combination. But last year I made like an apple slaw, like a kind of an apple salad. And so I shredded the apple. I actually used a mandolin. So it was like these little matchsticks. And then I did celery and red onion and pomegranate seeds and some rice vinegar. And I think just like a little salt and sugar. And I can't remember if I put other spices into it. But it was so fresh and just piled like a huge pile of that really, you know, all very finely shaved things and um, a huge pile of that on top of the latkes. And it was so delicious because it was so fresh and balanced so well with the fried latkes. Um, I was like, why is everybody not doing this? This is like such a great combination of food. So uh, I'm excited to share that this year and I will put the recipe up on my on my website. Um, But yeah, that was like a fun uh, invention that happened last year at at our Hanukkah table. That sounds really yummy. Yeah. Yeah, it was try good. Try <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, in the vein of talking about um, justice and spirit and, and your work, um, you, in your short time as a rabbinical student and as kind of a, a young Jewish leader, have been involved in a lot of stuff and started a lot of things. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, first maybe explain what a havara is and havarot is the plural and then maybe talk a little about the Havara that you're involved in and the network that you're involved with. Yeah, so a Havara is a small gathering of Jews, um, probably different from a, a synagogue. A synagogue would be a larger, more institutional thing. Um, I see a Havara to be more like, I don't know, like people-led, smaller, cozier, maybe home-based. Um, and so... A few years ago when I was in rabbinical school, I was experiencing a lot of racism and feeling quite alone. And so I went to my rabbi and I said, this is what's up. I'm struggling, feeling a little bit frustrated, um, concerned about this racism that I'm facing. And and are are there other Jews of color that I can connect with? And my rabbi was like, well, why don't you start a Havara? Why don't you start, you know, 
basically an affinity group, right? I think we can call Havara for this uh, for this purpose an affinity group, and so I did. I start. I founded the POC, the Person of Color Havara at Cold Sadak Synagogue. Um, I do want to lift up that we call it the POC Havara to acknowledge. Um, the places that people come from, there are people that are part of our community that are in the process of converting or are interested in converting. And therefore, the, the term like Jews of color may um, may not feel right for them yet. Um, and we also open up the space to people who say we maybe they're a partner, a Jew, a, a, par- right. a partner of color of a of a Jew in the synagogue. And so um, I think I find that that language of person of color makes our space a little bit more inclusive and it's just been a, a really, really sweet space to gather with um, fellow, but we'll say like people of color that are connected to Judaism um, and to just exist and to be, right? This is something, as I, as I said before, so many times we have to pick and choose parts of our identity that we allow to shine or that we have to hide and mute. And in this space, we just get to show up, right? I don't have to care if you're going to ask me if I belong here, if I know where I'm going, if I know what page we're on. No one's going to ask me that. I just get to show up. Um, and we get to have some really interesting and fruitful conversations um, and experiences together. You know, for this group, I created um, a ritual for the end of Shabbat. So Shabbat is our holy day in Judaism. And at the end of Shabbat, we have a ritual called Havdalah which is kind of how we mark the end of the Holy Sabbath, of, of Shabbat. Um, and I created a Havdalah recipe, uh, not recipe, um, a Havdalah ritual or ceremony that is for Jews of color specifically. Mm. Um, so in the Havdalah ritual, we, we actually light a braided candle, right? Um, and we smell spices and we drink wine, right? All things that are supposed to symbolize sweetness going into a brand new week. You know, may your week be bright like the candle. May it be sweet like the cloves and cinnamon that you smell and like the wine that you drink. And I was thinking, I think I was just like cooking one day and I was like, wait, why do I start every single dish I ever cook with sesame oil and white pepper and soy sauce, right? These are the things that my... Chinese mother told me I have to start every dish with and well maybe as Jews of color we want to bring other smells into Havdalah into this end of the the Shabbat ritual and so I, I rewrote the ritual and I invited people to bring in their own Havdalah spices that's so great and, oh my goodness I yeah. love this yeah yes. tell us. so you know I invited people to say you know I gave some prompting questions of like, okay, so what were the ingredients you were told to begin cooking with? What were the ingredients that were always on your shelf, your in your pantry? Um, what are the smells of home of wherever you grew up? And and I I want people to think like far 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 back, and that's something that smell can help us to do, mm-hmm. right? Smell helps us to go deeper and deeper and deeper and farther back into our memories. And so for me, then that's a really powerful experience when I'm standing in a room and I'm smelling my besamim, I'm smelling my concoction of scents, and it just helps me to ground so deeply Mm. because I'm like, hmm, okay, I'm smelling these smells, I'm feeling connected 
to my Chinese ancestors, and I'm so deeply in this Jewish ritual at the same time. And that's, so and that's the goal of our, of our Havara, you know, that we get to bring our full selves in and our full selves are completely woven and interconnected beautifully with Judaism. There's no, we can't tell the difference, right? The ceremony stays the same. So people have brought co- like wet cornmeal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a smell that someone brought. Um, they use it to make arepas in their home. Someone brought uh, lori season salt, which is a, you know, seasoning common in the in the homes of many black folks. Um, people have brought tea blends that they've made and so many other things. And it is like the most powerful experience when it's mm-hmm. when it's not pandemic and quarantine to be in a room and just pass these smells and be like, yes, this is what Judaism <laughs> is. This is what Judaism smells like, right? Yeah. It doesn't only smell like the Ashkenazi foods or the Ashkenazi scents that we smell um, during this ceremony. But we can we can really bring ourselves in. Yeah, I love that so much, and I think you know, it speaks to like why I do work in food and why I connect work around food and anti-racism work and food and justice work because I think, you know, part of white supremacy is this this idea that there is a thing called whiteness that there is like let's just make all these people who have all these different cultures and ethnicities and we're just going to call them all white and then they're one really big group and then everybody else is not white they're all their other separate little identities and part of what is really important about looking at kind of individual culture and and ethnicities of different people is that it starts to undo some of that myth of whiteness and say like Yes, there's like a large category called Ashkenazi, but within that, there's lots of different food cultures and lots of diff- different all kinds of culture and different scents, right? And and even to go deeper, like a lot of those spices are came out of the spice trade that was a lot involved in slavery throughout India and China and all, you know, different parts of the world. And so I think that like the thing that you're bringing up as a way to really acknowledge um, people's individual heritage and connecting within this ritual is actually something that could go even deeper into like, why do we just accept this group of spices as Ashkenazi, right? And how, uh, what, even more beyond that, like what are some of the the other spices or smells and how do we kind of see distinctions between different um, ethnic and cultural groups, even within the Ashkenazi tradition? Um, and it's something that I have worked on within myself as well as part of kind of how I've looked at internalized anti-Semitism and internalized um, racism and things and just how that shows up in myself and in my community. So, but that's so beautiful that you created that ritual. I love it. Yeah. And it's worth naming, you know, that there are people that hold complex identities, right? Like there are Jews of color who are also Ashkenazi. I mean, that's who I am, right? Like my father... My father's family is German, which is, you know, which we, we would consider Ashkenazi, but I also identify so deeply as being Chinese. And so, I don't know, Chinese Ashkenazi, right? That's not the norm. Ashkenazi right. in, in and of itself is the norm. So, yeah. 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 And my kids have the same thing as being Jews right. of color and being Ashkenazi. So I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about in the realm of like shining the light onto things is climate justice issues. And I know that that is part of the work that you do as well and um, is obviously an extremely important thing to be for us as a society, as a as a planet, 
as a human ex- people <laughs> to be dealing with. Could you talk a little bit about kind of within Judaism, how do you look at kind of addressing climate justice and, and connections within Judaism? Yeah, it's, it's so, so, so important. Um, so in terms of connecting it to Judaism, I just like to think about the divinity of all people, right? Um, I mean, for me, it really is that simple. Like if I truly believe in the divinity and the sacredness and the holiness of all people, which I am taught in my culture, and I, and I believe that most of us, probably all of us, are taught if we have any sort of like religious, spiritual practice, like that is a, a really common shared belief, then I have an obligation to care deeply about every single person, to love the neighbor. I mean, it's, it's really as simple as that. Yes. Um, and that <laughs> yes. means that yeah. I care when, when my neighbor's utilities are being shut off because they can't afford to pay it because it's winter and it's a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a climate justice issue, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have to look at where are people living? Where are black and brown people living? They are living closest to like what we call environmental justice zones, right? They're living closest to gas plants and, and other plants where, where gases and, and um, toxins are being released into the air, right? right? You look at Flint, Michigan and the, the poisoned water. Um, these, are, these are all climate justice issues. Um, and if I deeply care about each and every one of my neighbors, then I need to care about where they're living and how I'm making sure that the places that they're living are actually safe for them to live. And I need to care and act and scream and speak out, right? And shine a light, right? In in the spirit of Hanukkah, when their water is turned off and their gas is turned off and they don't have heat in the middle of winter. And I know that there are many places in the world right now um, that have implemented moratoriums, um, but I don't believe that that's across the board. And I know that there's still, there are still people. And it's um, not actually being enforced in a lot of places, even though there's like policies around it, people are still being evicted and people's heat is still being shut off, even though they've been told not to do that. So yeah, absolutely. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. um, yeah, I really thank you for sharing all of these things. It's really great to talk with you. And, and I didn't know when we were starting our conversation that, that, um, kind of your active celebrating of Hanukkah was um, was sort of just beginning. So I'm excited to hear over the next few years maybe how how that evolves and what kind of meaning uh, comes into you to it for you. And and also I'm intrigued, given your skill at creating rituals, what kind of rituals may evolve out of out of this for you. Yeah, definitely. There will definitely be new rituals on the horizon very, yeah. very soon. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing so much. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. So people can check thetableunderground.com for more info. I will paste some ways that you can um, stay in contact with May and follow her career as it evolves. And I'll also post some recipes up on the website. And my favorite family laka recipe is up there as well. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground.